Our sermon today comes from John 16, verses 16 through 33. I am going to make an attempt, especially as we go to the Lord's Supper together, to be uh, relatively brief, relative to uh, whatever's normal. Um, But I've titled this message, Peace and Joy in Times of Trouble. Peace and Joy in Times of Trouble. John 16, verses 16 through 33. And let's stand together. As we listen to God's voice in the scriptures and hear what the Holy Spirit has said to the church. Jesus said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, uh, indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we open your word now as always with the expectation you have something to say to us in it. And we open ourselves to receive it, Lord. We ask that you would shine light on your word, illuminate our hearts to understand, and make your word live to us. So would you speak, Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. 
and our good. And God, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today. For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. Well, last week, if you were here, the message was titled, Holding Fast in a Hostile World. Jesus said that uh, the world will hate you because it hated me first. The world will persecute you because it persecuted me. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. And then he said, I'm telling you this so that you will not fall away. That you'll hold fast, just hold fast in a hostile world. It was a common phrase uh, sort of related to that passage that says, you know, Christians are in the world, but not of the world. And that's true, and that's uh, helpful and instructive to us. I actually like the way one online author um, suggested we maybe rephrase that. I believe it was David Mathis, who was uh, one of the bloggers at Desiring God. But he said that, that sounds a little bit like when we say that, or sometimes the, the way we say it, it sounds like we're in the world, but we're trying to get out. <laughs> we're, we're trapped in the world, um, but reluctant residents. And um, he points out, you know, Jesus says we're not of the world. I chose you out of the world, but then he sent us back into the world. You understand that? He said, I, I, I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And so he's, he's called us out of the world, redeemed us, made his, uh, us his very own, and then sent us into the world. So we're not of the world, but we're sent into the world. I find that helpful just the slight nuance of difference there that reframes how we think about that because I'm not, uh, I'm not reluctantly here. I'm not um, sort of hiding out, hunkered down, bunkered down, sheltered, but engaged as his ambassadors in the world. But we are here not of the world. We are here always and in all things on his behalf. And so he said, uh, in that world, in that hostile world, uh, in the passage last week, essentially, hold fast. He really goes a step further than that in this passage. He says that in that hostile and troubled world, his disciples can find peace and joy. And that is certainly not automatic that we just default always to peace and joy. And it's not easy. We're not unwavering in that regard. And I will say, um, every time I approach a subject like this, as the scripture would take us here in a number of different places, I am immediately conscious of the fact that there are people today facing troubled times. The times today are more troubled for some than they are for others because of the circumstances they're living in. Because of the circumstances some of you are living in, I just prayed about some of that even just moments ago. I'm always conscious of that. I could name some individuals who are living uh, in the face of trials and tribulations right now as I am speaking. And so there's a, uh, there's a risk of 
talking about these things as if you're uh, making light of how, just how simple it is. Jesus said in four easy steps, I'm going to give you four ways that we can find joy and peace, but, but it's not easy, and I don't want uh, that to come across, especially those people who are feeling very heavy laden today, as if this is a light and trivial thing. Because when you are living in that hour of tribulation, the trial, the tribulation is what is up in your face, in your ear, shouting at you for all your attention. It's all you can see. It's all you can hear. And you're trying to look beyond it to see the face of Jesus. You're trying to listen beyond it to hear the truth of God's word. And what you see and hear is troubles in your face, shouting in your ear. I know that that's the case. And so does everybody, I think, probably who's lived any length of time as a believer. You've lived through seasons like that, where that is just hard to do. But Jesus encourages us with the truth that there is peace and joy to be found um, in the midst of troubled times. I want to take a quick look then at Four ways that we can do so. First of all, we can find peace and joy in times of trouble by expecting tribulation as a normal part of the Christian life. And this could seem really obvious, but it might also seem totally backwards because that doesn't sound initially like the source of peace, does it? Let me just comfort you with the fact that you're going to experience tribulation. You know, I, I sort of joked a little bit last week about, you know, Jesus said, the world hates you, be encouraged. I mean, you know, it's like, that doesn't sound encouraging, but if it's true, then knowing that is actually good. Knowing the truth is better than believing a lie. But he says in verse 20, you will weep and lament. To his disciples, you will have sorrow. And down in verse 20 and 33, in the world, you will have tribulation. It's, it's a part of life. And as I said, it may not sound like a source of peace, especially if you have come to think, consciously or unconsciously, that somehow following Jesus is supposed to offer you a relatively trouble-free life. Or maybe that the longer you're a Christian, the more trouble-free it'll become. You'll figure out all the Bible verses to speak over your problems and you'll just be delivered from them. <laughs> it's also, maybe doesn't strike somebody as a source of peace if your sense of peace, again, knowingly or unknowingly, if it depends upon comfortable circumstances. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if your sense of peace is hinged to, hitched to, um, peaceful circumstances. When everything's okay, I feel at peace. Well, that's not hard to do, right? But if, you're, if your peace is attached to that, the awareness, the declaration that you're going to have tribulation doesn't particularly sound like a source of peace. But 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 
When fiery trials come, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening. It's not strange. It's normal. And what, what Jesus, uh, I think, suggests to his disciples is while it's normal for everybody in life, the Christian has reasons to expect trial and tribulation may be even more normal for the Christian, not less so. Because of a world that in most parts of the world and throughout most of the history of the world has been hostile toward Christianity. And so that's one, one source of peace is just to know that's a normal part of life and it's like uh, storms or rain coming. If you're planning yard work in your yard and you know it's going to storm in the afternoon, you just know. I'll get, I'll get it done while I can get it done. And then when the rain starts, I'll go inside and I'll be rained out. Um, now, again, that makes a little bit light of the situation, but my point is simply to say, you just, you just know that it's coming. You don't necessarily, we, we don't have a weatherman who forecasts tribulation for us. I'm not sure if it would be good or bad to know that in advance, probably bad. We'd be fretful if we did know. But we just know that it's coming. And then when it does, we respond as Jesus told us to respond, which leads to point number two. Another way we can find peace and joy in times of trouble is to meditate upon eternal things. To meditate upon eternal things. There's maybe a better way of saying that, but I think this is really at the heart, particularly of this first section here, this passage about sorrow turning to joy. He says, a little while, you will not see me again a little while, and you will see me. And then later he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I want to try to give a little bit of context to this so we can appreciate uh, what's being said here. I think the, the, the plainest, most obvious understanding here is he's talking about what's getting ready to happen even the next day. He's going to be taken away, tried, crucified, killed, and laid in a tomb. A little while, only hours from now, that's going to happen. He'll be with them, and then they'll not see him. But then a little while longer, on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead, and he'll appear to them again. They'll see him again. A little while, you'll not see me, and then a little while, you will see me. But here's the thing about that. Even after his resurrection, so in other words, it's not like I'll be gone for a little while, but then I'm coming back and I'll, and I'll be present with you indefinitely. That's actually not what happened, is it? He, he, he was crucified, buried, he rose again. He was with them for about 40 days. And then he returned to the Father. And all that they were left to do, they were left to do with Jesus in heaven and the Holy Spirit with them. But Jesus was not present with them. And even so, here's the dots I want to connect for you. Their joy would not be taken from them. Why? Because Jesus had accomplished something in that grave and in that resurrection. 
that he had accomplished something of eternal significance. He had secured for them and all those who would believe in him eternal life. And that changed everything in their perspective. They would be sorrowful immediately. They would be even more perplexed tomorrow than they are tonight at first. They would be scattered. They'd be scrambling, trying to figure out what do we do now? What has just happened? But after his resurrection and his appearing to them and the time with them and then his ascension, everything changed for them. Because they knew confidently, unwaveringly, that he really was King of kings and Lord of lords and that he had secured an eternal victory. So I think that's at the heart of what's being communicated here is that our perspective has to shift from the temporal things to eternal things. And it goes right back to what I said earlier. If our peace is grounded in the here and now and comfortable circumstances, we'll be rocked all the time. We'll be tossed to and fro by all kinds of winds and waves. So we need to meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done. And and this is really, he touches on the same theme as he concludes this passage down in verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The King James and New King James version that many of us or maybe first introduced to this passage from says, be of good cheer. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. And once again, if it had been anybody but Jesus saying that, you'd probably tell them, pipe down. But see, he's saying in me, You will have peace. So take heart. I've overcome the world. You're not of the world. The world is not your home. And it's not your final destination. Take heart. Meditate on eternal things. Number three, we find peace by asking the Father for what you need. In troubled times... In trying times, in the face of tribulation, one of the ways we can find peace is by asking the Father. That sounds really basic, doesn't it? How often do we fail to just go to God first and often, making our needs known with thanksgiving and asking Him for what it is we need? But he says that in verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That, of course, presupposes that we're asking in the name of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. I'm going away. I'm not going to be asking the Father anymore on your behalf. You're going to ask him yourself in my name. And you'll receive that your joy may be full. But ask in the name of Jesus. James 4 verses 2 and 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. He's talking there specifically about asking for wisdom. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
But if we truly ask the Father in Jesus' name, we cannot ask wrongly. If, we, if we're really asking in the name of Jesus, we can't ask wrongly. And if we ask wrongly, we can't truly be asking it in Jesus' name. And the reason for that, to ask in his name, is to, is to appeal to his authority. That I come on the authority of Jesus, almost on behalf, asking something he would ask. Uh, my, my, uh, what I'm asking is aligned with his will. I'm asking in his name. Can't ask wrongly if that's the case. And one of the ways I can be most confident in that is when I ask explicitly what the scripture tells me to ask. I pray the scriptures back to God and you can have confidence that you're praying the will of God. And so ask the Father for what you need. And then number four, dwell on the Father's love for you. Again, I'm, I realize as, I'm, as I was writing this and as I'm saying it, there's so much about this that sounds so elementary. And yet we fail to live by elementary principles. Very often. We get, again, distracted by cares of the world, weighed down by cares of the world, uh, pulled away by affections of the world and all that kind of stuff and fail to just live by elementary principles on the world, but we need to dwell on the Father's love for us and be astounded by it. Because that it is an astounding truth that the Father loves you. On this subject of asking the Father in the Son's name, Jesus says, down in verses 26 and 27, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The Father doesn't just accept you because of Jesus, although you are accepted by Jesus. But it, it, he, you're not just acceptable to him. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't begrudgingly let you in and hang out and just stand over there somewhere and don't get in the way. He loves you. That word there in that particular passage used for love is that brotherly love, uh, phileo, uh, the, the root of the word Philadelphia, the city, city of brotherly love. Not customarily the word that's used to refer to the love that God has toward the world. But it describes something of an affectionate love. The Father himself loves me. Let's say that together. The Father himself loves me. Say that again. The Father himself loves me. I really believe there are probably lots of Christians and probably some of us right here who could stand to have that posted on our mirror. Who in a manner of speaking, maybe literally, but if not literally, figuratively, would, would look at ourselves and there are things 
we have a hard time loving about ourselves. Um, things that we have come to believe that others find unlovely about ourselves and have a really hard time truly believing the Father himself loves me. But it is, a, it is true and it is a profound truth and it's a life-changing truth and we need to dwell on that. So when the world hates you, as the devil hates you, as life seems to turn against you, you can say, the Father himself loves me. What does it matter what you scoundrels think? (laughs) The Father himself loves me. And so, as I said, it's, that is not um, by default that that happens. It's not easy um, to, to find it, but we can find joy and peace in the midst of trials and tribulations by expecting that they're part of normal life, by meditating on eternal things, not temporal things, by asking the Father and dwelling on his love for you. Well, let's close in prayer as we go to the Lord's table together. Lord, we need these reminders. And God, we need not only to hear them and receive them intellectually and even believe them, but we need to be penetrated deep in our being by a conviction that those things are true, that our lives may really be transformed by. And God, I pray that you'd be so gracious to do that for all of us here and most especially those who right now, this morning, are hearing the the shouts and the badgering of tribulations and trials and troubles. God, would you show them a glimpse of eternal things and press upon their hearts your fatherly, affectionate love for them. And Lord, give them and all of us a new perspective that we might find peace even as we're tried and troubled. We depend wholly on you to accomplish that and ask that you would in the name of Jesus. Amen.